Paracast, with your hosts Gene Steinberg and David Pietri. You know, David, back in the early days, if you wanted to fake a UFO photo, you got yourself a lampshade. You got yourself some light bulbs, and you put them together, and you got someone named George Adamski, and you came out with a typical UFO fake. Or you did what Howard Menger would do, where he'd actually just paint it. So his UFO pictures look like paintings. Nowadays, of course, you go and spend $695 to buy yourself a copy of Adobe Photoshop. Well, that would be the standard version, not not the uh, extended version. Well, of course. The extended version, of course, allows you to do animation and stuff, right? Well, that and other things, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Okay. So the question now is whether or not Photoshop is evil. Well, I don't know. Why would anyone say Photoshop is evil? I mean, it is used around the world to retouch photos, help create movie special effects, to create artwork for the biggest magazines and newspapers. Why is it evil? Well, guns kill people. People don't kill people. I mean, people kill people. Guns don't kill people. I mean, people with guns kill people, but guns with people... Oh, I don't know. Forget it. Well, in fact, if we didn't have guns and people, we'd be fine. Uh, Would we have chocolate still? Well, okay, so we have chocolate and guns and people, and then we have guns and roses. Uh, No, we're not going to have guns and roses, because they officially suck. Now they do. Back in the day, they were pretty good, but now, anyway, let's get down to the topic here, which is, of course, the use of Photoshop to fabricate bogus images, or to deconstruct bogus images. And that's really the key issue, isn't it? What do people use technology for? What is the context? I think we'd like to talk about that today with Jeff Ritzman, someone who is intimately familiar with issues of Photoshop and fabricated images and debunking images and Billy Meyer's underwear. (laughs) Everybody take a drink. (laughs) I think David has already taken enough for all for the three of us here. Everybody take a drink. I just had some Nestle water, that's all. Purified. With, yeah. Oh, Nestle water, huh? Uh-huh. They use reverse osmosis. They told yeah. me that reverse osmosis is the magic elixir. Uh-huh. Yeah, there we go. Water by Coke. Right. Oh, <laughs> That's the Sandy. <laughs> oh, man. The Sandy is water by Coke. <laughs> I'm a fruit 2.0 man myself. There you go. Fruit 2.0. <laughs> that explains a lot. Oh, God. But does oh, it take man. this kind of liquid refreshment to build a fake UFO photo? Well, it helps. Actually, if it's got caffeine, it really helps. Okay, so so earlier this week, maybe, David, you'll pick up on this. I get this via email. Someone posted in our forums a picture from the Coast to Coast AM website. No, no, we can't say their name. It's Toast to Toast. With, with bobblehead and cheesemonger. We have to get this straight. Okay, so toast to toast. They used the $4 toaster oven from Walmart. And what did they come up with? Well, there were these pictures posted by a guy named Chad, which to me says quite a bit. <laughs> Everybody these... named Chad now feels insulted. Well, as they should. They should call their parents and berate them, not us. It's not our fault they're named Chad. But a person who, cl- who claims to have taken these incredibly clear, compelling pictures of an incredibly strange-looking 
3D studio model, I mean uh, a UFO, posted these things on Coast to Coast saying, oh, look, uh, I saw these with my wife, and uh, we came back a, a day or two or three later, and it was back, hopping and skipping around. Look at this crazy-looking ship. And they posted these photographs that are rather obviously 3D models composited on photographic background plates of this really weird-looking ship that doesn't look like anything anyone has ever seen in the entire history of ufology. And, and that, of course, should be really the first tip-off. These photos that are really clear, really crisp, obviously bogus. And um, there has been a bunch of discussion about these particular photographs, to the extent where, I guess, our, um, our guest Stanton Friedman, who has appeared on the show before, not our guest today, but someone who's been on the show a number of times, went on to coast to coast, I mean toast to toast this week, and claimed that he wasn't sure sure about these images they were going to be sitting in his gray box stanton you're a smart guy i think you need to take some photoshop classes with me so i can teach you exactly how an image is fake because these images to even the moderately trained eye are so obviously ridiculous that there should be no question about whether or not these images are genuine which they're not and jeff uh, i think you were pulled in at one point by the powers that above top secret to take a look at these images what did you think yeah. well i mean at first looking at them the the one thing that immediately kind of caught my eye was that uh, in one shot you've got it you know it, when i say this thing was pointing in a certain direction we have to take into consideration that there does some, seem to be like a leading edge which is like the longer tendril off of the the main body of this object i say that is the forward i'm just using that as a reference that's the sure. forward part of the ship or whatever you want to call it and there's a part that looks like it's more or less pointing towards you and there's uh, some trees off to the right hand side of the photo and it looks to me like hey it could be maybe six foot long maybe something like that but then you go to another shot where it seems to be going over top of a, a hedgerow of trees where it looks like it's <laughs> absolutely humongous you know and when you go from that kind of scale in one shot which really, I don't understand how that shot was framed anyway, considering it looks like the guy was in the trees taking the shot or on a hill mm -hmm. um, overlooking, you know, downward trees or something like that. The scales just don't, they don't seem to jive, you know, and that's like one of the biggest common mistakes with doing CG stuff is your, your scale and perspective kind of gets mismatched or it doesn't seem to go with the, they don't match the back plate to the actual object close enough to make right. it appear to be the right scaling or, or spatial area. So that kind of like put me off right immediately of it. Um, I mean, it's certainly an interesting looking thing. I mean, it, it's neat looking, but uh, <laughs> I don't think it's I don't think it's real. Um, the other thing that kind of got me about it was that the distance shot of it going over top the trees again is uh, the, the focus is completely wrong. The trees are fuzzied out and the the ship is real clear until it gets to the trees and then it's fuzzy a little bit so again that's just that's somebody just kind of fudging over their work and and people who tend to do this tend to overwork it they overwork it to such a point that it becomes obvious that it's been messed with so i think that's one of the biggest ways to tell because that person is always looking at it and saying okay does that yeah their own eye kind of plays tricks on them to say this is going to look better you know, if it's blurred out a little bit here, you won't be able to see it as 
clearly, but they don't follow through with the, the whole thing. They just do this one little piece. They become focused on, you know, trying to hide their tracks. And um, nine times out of ten, they overdo it. So What I also find really interesting is that when people are fabricating t- uh, 2D static images, there's a lot less thought given to consistency than if you're creating an animated sequence. And that makes right. a lot of sense. When you're doing animation, you have to think about how things move from frame to frame. Consistency is a huge issue when you're doing 3D rendering and animation of a 3D object. Consistency of motion, consistency of lighting to match the environment. One of the first things that immediately called out to me in these images is that the surface of the object is far too flat. It looks like someone who doesn't really understand how lighting works or it's just really starting to learn how lighting works. And to me, there are aspects of this image that just absolutely scream a novice lighting person. And this is an important point, because what a lot of people don't realize, I think, is that in the world of professional 3D, there is actually a specialty that, uh, for example, if you go to work in a place like Industrial Light and Magic or Rhythm and Hughes or um, any of the big effects houses, what you quickly learn is that There are people whose jobs it is to do nothing more than light the scene and to figure out not only what the appropriate lighting is, but at this point in time to also figure out how to create the texture maps that are used in high dynamic range imaging. And this is another uh, sort of a technical aspect of 3D rendering that's relatively new. It's not a it's not a long time technique. It's really only come about in the last four or five years, and um, it involves utilizing very high bit depth versions, photographs of an environment that you're going to place an object into to then act as the lighting for the 3D object that's being placed into the environment. This imparts a truly convincing, almost staggering level of realism to 3D renders. This particular image, or the series of images, I should say, of this, uh, what what I'm sure is a bogus fabricated UFO. It's not, this is in no way genuine. This is, to my eye, very obviously fabricated. And the big problem, well, there are a number of big problems with it, but to me, the biggest problem is the texturing and the lighting of this thing. Um, It's far too uniform. It does not display the kinds of entropy we would see if we had an object, regardless of the actual nature of the surface or the characteristics of the surface of an object, we would see some entropy, some differentiation. If you look at the shots of this thing, the surface of the object is completely uniform, and the lighting on it is completely uniform. When we look at shadow areas, this is one picture of a thing hanging above what would be the photographer, the photographer pointing straight up, shooting this thing, and there are some shadows underneath of this object that are completely wrong. They're far too uniform, they're far too symmetrical. They wouldn't look that way in real life. They would look very different. So this is an amateur job. Uh, I, I think this is, uh, I would call the person who did this intermediate. Advanced, intermediate. I would say yeah. advanced hobbyist. Yeah, my okay. Opinion. Okay, well, that would be the person, I guess, who'd want to fake a picture.
We have William Burns, the publisher of UFO Magazine, on the line. William, can you give us an offer for our readers about getting the magazine? Yes, I sure can. Here's an offer for your listener. We have a special five-issue introductory offer for first-time subscribers, 1995 for your first five issues. Not available anywhere else, but on the Paracast. So, Bill, how do they place the order? People can place orders by going to www.ufomag.com. They can also place orders over the phone at one eight 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 UFO MAGA, or they can write to us at Post Office Box one one zero one three Marina Del Rey, California nine zero two nine five. Bill, give us that contact information again. It is UFO Magazine, Post Office Box one one zero one three Marina. Del Rey, California, 90295, or they can go directly to www.ufomag.com, and they can also call 1-888-UFO-MAGA, and they can subscribe right over the phone with a credit card. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. You're in the Paracast with James Spangler and David Bianchi. You never know what's going to happen next. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney, and we have Jeff Fritzman, extraordinary digital artist, joining us, and UFO investigator and experiencer, and we're talking about this proliferation of UFO photos that <laughs> are presented in the wrong places to people as something that might be genuine, even though they are patently fake. Now, I look at the thing myself, and I'm not a Photoshop expert. I'm a dabbler. And I said, something is wrong. This don't strike me as being right. And don't you think, David, that people who look at these things objectively and forget the fact that maybe they wish it were from a real UFO, if you look at it, you'll get a real impression as to whether it strikes you as being genuine or not. I think the problem here, guys, is that you would expect that the general audience for this stuff would be, at this point in time, fairly visually sophisticated. That, you know, people who go to see lots of sci-fi movies would have eyes that would be able to discern between something fabricated and something real. And what the commotion around these photos suggests to me is that People are not as visually sophisticated as we, as we would hope they would be. I think if you're an experienced 3D artist, you look at these images and immediately you see the problems with the textures and the lighting, as I said before. If you're sort of the person that would, for example, frequent AboveTopSecret.com, I guess the problem is that your predisposed attitude is that you want to believe that these things are real. And people get really excited when they see a series of clear shots and say, oh my God, well, these have to be real. And then it, it kind of took off from there because not only do I feel there are problems with textures and lighting, but this series of images also 
had something that we almost never see in any compelling UFO photo, which is all sorts of weird, arcane text uh, labels on the underside of this thing. Something that I think there have only been one or two cases that I've ever heard of where there was any kind of writing on the outside of a UFO. This thing has ample amounts of it that are basically just so fake-looking that, that anybody would take it seriously. You know, to me, again, it's the kind of thing where, I guess if you're a Star Trek fan who believes that there's a language called Klingon, and you you spend time to learn it and speak it and pronounce it properly, then you are, in essence, creating your own reality, but that reality has nothing to do with, you know, objective reality. Some of the images that are a little closer of the thing allow you to see some detail of this lettering, and it's uh, it's ridiculous. It's the kind of thing that a science fiction fan would make up for a fabricated set of photographs. It's not the kind of thing we've ever seen in genuine, or what I would call truly compelling, UFO encounters. It's something we've never seen on photographs. That's because I don't think there has ever been a situation where anyone's seen a craft that's had this kind of detailed lettering. But again, guys, those are only some of the problems, because for me, and this was the part that really got me, um, there was an email that went out from Victor Martinez's list, and uh, (laughs) (laughs) I almost don't want to say it, but uh, the guy who was one of the primary guys behind the Serpo nonsense, Bill Ryan, came out and basically said that he found that the photographs were compelling, but he especially found that the backstory posted on on the Toast to Toast website was, in his words, authentic. Now, reading the backstory that's posted on Toast to Toast that goes with these, that's when you really know that this is complete nonsense. The person who, who posted these photos said that they, the first picture was taken on, a, on one day with a cell phone camera, and then a few days later, a friend of this person lent this person his camera, and then they went together to go back and take pictures of the thing that kept showing up. You see, it was sort of waiting there for them. And so they, a, a day or two or a few days later, got a camera, went back, and there it was hopping and skipping around. And when I say hopping and skipping, uh, and I'll read this right from the notes that are on Toast to Toast, the guy says, I have probably seen this thing maybe eight different times since the first appearance. My friend and I went out the next day after I saw it to get the photos, but it was not there. Then again, then we tried again the next day, and we found it within like 30 minutes and followed it for a while. I mean, this is where it gets silly. And then it just gets really ridiculous when he starts talking about how it moves almost like an insect. If you have ever seen a bug on a pond, it is kind of like that. It is very smooth and slow most of the time, but then every now and then it will rotate very quickly and go very fast in another direction, then stop and repeat the process all over again. You start reading stuff like that, you look at the picture, all the problems with the photographs are, to me again, very obvious. And then the backstory is truly ridiculous. The whole thing, taken as a whole, is just utterly nonsensical. So that people are even considering this to be compelling. People like Stanton Friedman saying that they put it in their gray basket, or Bill Ryan saying, oh, I think the backstory is very compelling, is just silly. These photographs are obviously fabricated. And unfortunately, I think we're going to see a lot more of situations like this with proliferation of tools like Photoshop. Don't you think, Jeff? Yeah, I do. I think it's uh, well. I think it's bad already. I mean, as far as the lettering goes, mm-hmm. the lettering 
and you know, David, you know me. <laughs> to be honest with you, when I saw that lettering, it immediately clicked in my head that that's Arabesh. That is the Star Wars lettering from the Star Wars universe. It's a widely really? available font. Yeah, at least um, <laughs> at least several of the characters on there I found to match really clearly, but unfortunately, some of them are so small I can't make them out uh, well enough to compare them. But at least the one that appears to be like a an upside down seven and a couple other right. ones on there that's Arabesh. And um, and I, the other thing I find kind of interesting is the very pale light gray or dark gray on the uh, on the the wings or appendages. There seems to be like a circle with a cross with an X, you know, inside yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That looks a right hell now. of a lot like the uh, the Imperial Cog, <laughs> you know. So, uh, you know. Well, the aliens I, I, watch Star Wars. It has yeah, to be that, of course. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, it's you know, I just uh, I have you know I have flashbacks of this thing, like uh, you know. <laughs> I, I I just have I have flashbacks of Vader standing on his door Star Destroyer saying that's it they're there let's go you know <laughs> I mean it it's just when I see that it's like okay you know not doing it for me especially due to the lettering and the weirdness of those cogs on there huh. um, hey, it's me... just a little too similar for me huh. we want to hear from you if you have a comment or a question about the podcast send it to News at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and Gene and Data. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. Let me tell our listeners you're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. We have Jeff Ritzman, one of our favorite UFO investigators joining us and we're talking about fake photos that are proliferating all over the place and this one if you want to see where the photo is a really direct link rather than talking about that website at toast to toast or toaster oven to toaster oven in fact that's what they used to use toaster ovens to fake ufos square ufos but anyway we have a link at the paracast discussion forums so if you go to our site at the com slash forums and you look up in our ufo forum we have the photo there, a link to the photo and the story. And the story doesn't really match, to my mind, the picture. And the picture looks totally different than any other UFO photo. So why would anyone even consider it for more than five seconds, especially after looking at that lettering? Well, the problem is that people want to believe. And people basically disconnect their reasoning abilities. They disconnect their frontal lobes when they look at this stuff. And they want to believe it's real. And... That's all good and fine, but as I said, to me, even moderately, well, I think Jeff used the term moderately expert person, but even I think a typical moviegoer would look at this and see that it's flat and it's fake. And it's fascinating how many people want to believe that this thing is genuine. The thread that happened on Above Top Secret around this thing was, to me, very, uh, very disappointing that... People will look at this and they'll consider it to be compelling. It sort of falls in line with the Lake Erie stuff that uh, David Sarita is putting in his ridiculous, nonsensical movie that he's doing, whatever the name of it is, from here to Newark or from here to Bedford-Stuyvesant. Or from here to Chicago by way of Minneapolis. There you go. From here to Timbuktu, man. 
you know, people look at this stuff and they want to believe that these things are unexplained, but they'll simply disregard anything that doesn't fit that belief system. And this is where I think there is a huge problem in trying to be objective about this stuff. And the simple fact that there's been so much of this lately, and when I know that I try to respond to some of the stuff online, people either will question my credentials, they'll, and they don't want to even do the basic due diligence of typing my name into Google, seeing what my background is. And that tells you something about people's willingness to make some sort of effort to try to understand this stuff, which is that they don't want to make any effort at all. Really what they want to happen is to have other, someone else tell them that it's real, and then they can basically accept it as real without having to expend any effort. And that seems to be uh, a thread that we see in so many aspects of our lives these days. It's the will to believe, and you hope UFOs are real, or maybe you've come to believe it, so you don't critically examine those photographs, even though, number one, this one is anomalous. It's truly anomalous in terms of its shape. I mean, I've never seen a shape like that before, so why would anyone take this as being credible, especially after you look at the lettering and you say, wait a minute, <laughs> What's going on here? And I know that somebody who posted the message in our forums, you had a response pointing out in our forums at thepowercast.com that you felt it was a fake. Here are the reasons. And then someone says, did you analyze it? And I said, well, I responded on your behalf saying, wouldn't a doctor look at you in two seconds and know if you have a cold or not? Well, David could look at something pretty quickly and know how it was faked. Well, of course, you hope a doctor would actually spend more than two seconds looking at you. <laughs> well, the problem with doctors these days, that's another discussion, which is, yeah. of course, unfortunately, doctors don't spend more than two minutes. They say, okay, it's $85 for two minutes, and if for each additional minute, it's... It's forty nine ninety five. It's that's how it works now with doctors. Yeah, I didn't have to look at these images too long. And actually, Jeff, when I posted my first comment on the above top secret board, I did it in response to Springer, who's one of the owners of the the above top secret site, right? And and said to him, Hey, you know what? He said I have to run this by Jeff and see what he thinks. And I said, You know, don't even bother Jeff with this. <laughs> I can tell you for both of us that this is just silly. Yeah, and it, it it's not in any way compelling. But, but again, guys, there seems to be a, a lot of this going on, and part of it is that people don't understand the sophistication of 3D tools. They don't understand the sophistication of Photoshop, and the fact is that these tools allow you to make great things if you have the skill set to do so, and if you have the knowledge of how to use these tools to do so. And it's really easy for someone like Jeff and myself to look at amateurish efforts and flag them as such. I've been in situations where I've had to evaluate as a visual effects supervisor the work of a team of people creating visual effects that not only had to be consistent, but that had to be convincing. And doing both with any level of success is not an easy task. And it's interesting how if you go to a place like Industrial Light Magic and if you sat through dailies, which is what happens every morning when people look at the work that's been rendered out the night before up on the big screen to see how things really look or how they're going to look in the movie when it's projected. Things that most people would say, oh, those look just fine, those shots. The professional will look at them and see nothing but problems. And that's something that is simply the fact that the person who is producing the shot has an intimacy with the elements that make up the shot. 
that the average viewer will never have. And that's just a fact of life. When I go back and look at the original Star Wars movies, to me, I see all the limitations of the technology that was deployed at that time to create those effects. And as time goes by, those deficiencies and the artifacts that are generated by those techniques and the deficiencies of those techniques becomes clearer and clearer. I think a really good example of that is if you go back and look at the groundbreaking work that Ray Harryhausen did. And he was uh, one of the greatest stop-motion animators of all time, maybe even besides Willis O'Brien, the guy who did King Kong, the greatest of them all. Didn't well, he, he learn his craft under Willis O'Brien, too? He, he, he did indeed. And these guys at the time were doing really groundbreaking stuff, but the technology imposed severe limitations. My favorite example of this is in the classic movie Jason and the Argonauts, when you've got the skeleton battle at the end of the movie. That's great stuff. Um, Great stuff, right? I mean, as a kid looking at that, I was like, oh my God, the skeletons are coming out of the ground. (laughs) And, you know, really great suspenseful stuff, really well choreographed. But the trained eye notices that the skeletons do not cast shadows on the ground. Unlike the people fighting them. And to a trained eye, that's the dead giveaway. That's pretty much all you need to know to suggest that the skeletons were miniatures and were comped onto the background plates as a post-process. They weren't there in the scene. They're skeletons. They're ghosts. Who knows? No, a skeleton's not a ghost. They're two different things. And the skeleton bones are are opaque. Oh, I know you know that. being silly. Fate Magazine provides true reports of the strange and unknown. Keep up with the latest on angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, life after death, and much, much more. To receive your free issue of Fate Magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's one 800 728 2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. You never know what's going to happen next. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. We have UFO researcher, experiencer, and digital effects expert. And Jeff. guitar modder extraordinaire. Oh, guitar modder extraordinaire. Wow. Hey, I'm now. going to tell you something. that <laughs> I saw a picture of a guitar that Jeff Ritzman modified. I've never seen such extraordinary workmanship. Ah. This guy is a man of millions and millions of talents. We're talking here about the fact that so many of the things that are going on in UFO research revolve around fakery and photos can be faked so easily and good people with talent can take anything and make it look real and people who know enough to be dangerous can come up with some pretty crummy looking 
photos. It's not like throwing Frisbees in the air anymore. We don't throw Frisbees in the air. You know, I was going to ask you guys, you follow above topsecret.com, the messages. I don't follow as carefully. But there's a thread there called Photoshop is a curse to ufology. (laughs) Okay, guys, who wants to take that one? Jeff. Oh, great. Thanks. Yeah, I'll follow up. Don't worry. Yeah, it's, um, it's pretty silly to say that. I mean, I do understand to a point where the guy is coming from in that a lot of people are either A, using Photoshop to fake something, or B, we're using it to find out that they're faked. You know, there's, there's one thing that we got to talk about whenever you talk about fake photographs that, that come out and get a lot of attention is that anytime that David or I would go into any form and we think it's this, and it was done this way, and here's why this, and here's why, and here's an example of what we're talking about. You may get X amount of people to go, oh, man, I see that now. Okay, cool. You may get other people who just venomously deny that you have any ability to do anything, and how do you know you weren't there? And just just assorted nastiness from, from a certain type of person that will come into this thing believing this is real. And I think one of the things that we have to realize is that a lot of people are just like us in a, in a way, but dissimilar from us in another, in that we are wanting to look at something critically, and if it's the real deal, at that point we go, okay, I don't know what it is. Right. Past that, there's not a lot we can say about it. But if it's a faked picture, and we can prove that, and we can show why, I guess I have to be a little bit, I have to feel a little bit for these people who walk into it believing wholeheartedly that it's real, because they have... Not only the desire to believe it, it's not alone that. They already believe it. It's more along the lines that they feel that if this picture is real, then this verifies their belief. And it gives them the brass ring in their hand. It's what everybody wants. Everybody wants the proof. And when they see a photo like this, or a series of photos like these, they go, finally, it's over. It's done. We've got it. Well, And then when somebody like me or David walks in and says... Uh, you know, not exactly, and kind of here's why. Then immediately, we are the robber of their their, their sphere I mean, of belief in this well, thing yeah. that the the journey is now over for them. They've found their truth. They've found their proof, and it's not that. And I think that we kind of have to not necessarily you know, blow those people off. We have to say, look, you know, if you want to genuinely get to the meat here, we have to go through a lot of this. And you can't jump on everyone that comes along that looks semi-okay and say, this has got to be it because it's just too bizarre. You know, now we got to look at every single one with the same eyeglass and we have to look at it with the same eyes. And yeah, they're getting a lot more sophisticated. But in just say 10 or 20 years time, we're going to look back at this you know, at this alien barbecue girl floating in the sky and say, this is ridiculous. How, how did anybody ever look at that and say, this looked decent? You know, maybe um, George Foreman faked it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just it's just one of those things where, again, people, when the uh, brought up Star Wars a couple times, when the prequels came out, everybody was disappointed. Oh, they're just not as good as the originals. Well, of course not. We were different people back then. We had different eyes back then and different expectations of that. The same is happening with this. We look back at how many people thought Myers' photographs were just really good looking. And now look at us today. (laughs) You know, I mean, it's just one of those things. As you go along, you find these things and people gravitate them because they think this is it. 
And when you tell them it's not, you're immediately the enemy. And I think that, you know, I just want to say that you were not the freaking enemy here. The enemy is always going to be the data. Is it going to stand up to the punches? If it doesn't, then, you know, it's not the deal. And it's not the answer. So I think it's the, it's like David has mentioned to me several times, you know, he went to a meeting and someone said, well, if this is true and this is true, give me the Reader's Digest version. Everybody wants the snap yeah. answer. Yeah. There is no snap answer here. If this thing on Coast to Coast was real, and me and David said, yeah, it's real, what does that mean? doesn't mean anything. doesn't mean we don't, know, we don't know what it is. That's we right. don't know where it came from. We don't, so, I mean, past that, what do you want us to say about it? <laughs> There's not a lot to be said. If it's an unknown, all we can say is we don't know what it is. You pass that, that's for everybody else to make up their own mind. Well, so, that's where we get to the core of the problem here, because let's say, okay, we and, and Jeff, you've just really stated it. You have a photograph. You can prove it's not one of ours. Mm-hmm. We can prove it's completely anomalous. We can prove that it is a true UFO. Well, what does that tell us? Well, it doesn't tell us anything. Nothing. doesn't tell us where it's from. doesn't tell us what it is. doesn't tell us why it's here. It tells us nothing. People make assumptions, and it's kind of interesting to see how people assume that, well, I saw it up in the air. It must be from outer space. Right. I saw it fly in through the atmosphere. It must be from outer space. Really? I mean, you know, there's nothing to, to, to prove that. And what really kills me about all this is that people say, well, we need a clear photo. We need a photo. Hey, guys, if you go and do your research, you'll find that in the history of photographs of UFOs, there are pictures that are truly unexplained. Right. There are pictures that are unexplained and have a tremendous amount of witness testimony and witness corroboration, radar evidence, photos that have been taken from multiple angles. Well, there aren't many of those, unfortunately. But, I mean, a great, a great example of that is a series of photos that came out of a case that happened in January of 1958, right off the coast of Brazil. Well, not right off, about 650 miles off the coast of Brazil, a place called Trindade Island, where it was a Brazilian Navy ship was out. And they saw this really strange craft zooming around the island. They took a series of photographs of it. The photographs are, to my mind, some of the most compelling photos of a UFO ever taken. There's a tremendous amount of, of witness testimony. All these Navy people were on the, on the ship who corroborated the whole thing. This is, to my mind, one of the most compelling cases of photographic evidence. It's almost rock solid. Um, there are some other photos that are, that are like this. And actually, this is a series of photographs of the thing around different parts of the, the sky above the island, where the right amount of atmospheric density is present. The thing closely conforms to the descriptions of the witnesses. And uh, these photographs were examined by a number of people and proven to be unquestionably legitimate and real. So, you know, if you want like some smoking gun evidence, photographic evidence. Those things exist, but as Jeff pointed out, that doesn't tell you anything. All it tells you is you have a photograph of an unexplained object, but that's it. The proof is not going to come from a photograph. I mean, it's not going to happen, because there's always going to be someone out there that's going to say, this could be a military project, this could be God knows what. could be a private enterprise experiment. Who knows? I mean, there's no way to say anything is alien, quote-unquote, 
right. uh, just from a picture. It's just not going to happen. I mean, they're interesting to look at, and they're fun to dissect here and there. And, I mean, you and I get that question on ATS all the time. Well, what do you think is a good photo? What do you think is, a good, is good visual evidence, you know? said, you know, look at the eclipse stuff out of Mexico City. You know, you talk multiple witness, multiple angles, and uh, you know, you've clearly got something that that's this shaped in that, and uh, and it's it's decent footage. What is it? I have no idea what it is. Could be right. a kid playing with a with a gas powered remote control flying saucer for all I know, but it's good footage. <laughs> that infrared footage from the Mexican Air Force, um, yeah, that infamous I mean, infrared footage of like nine or eleven different objects zooming around in infrared in the infrared spectrum. Those, I mean, that footage is incredibly compelling. Oh yeah, I mean that stuff exists, but it, it doesn't tell you anything. And last summer there was the case that, interestingly enough, a lot of the bubbleheads in the UFO community picked up on this quick and were trying to say, oh, these are all legitimate. That whole series of photographic uh, video clips that came out of Australia. Yeah. The Australian UFO wave of the summer of 2006, which right. the minute I saw those videos, I knew they were fake. <laughs> I looked at them and I said, well, yeah. these are really good CG animations composite onto the live action plates, but that's all this is. And I, I think I said that on some online forum. I got immediately attacked for it. Oh, yeah. Well, gee, how could... Look, they're all different shapes, and they all purport to be uh, from different parts of Australia. And I said, you know, it's real simple. How many people have heard of a series of corroborating witness reports <laughs> that would confirm any of these things? Well, there wasn't a single witness report of any sort. Hey, said, so you that, have, that's a good point of interruption right there. No, it's not. Thank you. to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and gene and data. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Vietney, and we're talking to Jeff Ritzman. We're all sharing UFO photograph lore, and David's telling us about the series of photographs that appeared in Australia without any corroborating evidence, without eyewitness testimony, and people were quick to accept it, and then the other shoe dropped. Well, it was real simple. Uh, you looked at all these chunks of footage. They were all crystal clear, which immediately tells you something's wrong. There were all different types of craft, which also tells you something's wrong. And then the best part was when the last of the video clips was put up, and it was of an obviously rather poorly faked alien running towards the camera. And the minute I saw the alien, I said, oh, that's, uh, that's Poser. That's a right. piece of, of software called Poser. I actually recognized the alien model that ships with Poser. I said, oh, that's Poser. Oh, this is all just silly. And um, then what happened is the guy who was behind these things came forward and admitted that it was an art project that was funded by the Australian Film Commission and uh, that they were all bogus except for two of the clips. The guy claimed that two of the clips were genuine, and he put those in there as kind of a, a, a control reference. And um, I looked at, of course, the two that he claimed were genuine were the least compelling of right. all the clips, which was kind of funny. But... In the end, essentially, it really made the point that you can, with the proper amount of motivation and skill, easily fake 
video footage as well as still images. And of course, at that point, all the people who said that they thought these things were legitimate were like, "Oh well, well we weren't sure," and uh, well, I guess we were wrong. And you know, people recanted and, and backpedaled and did everything they could to disassociate themselves from the statements they had made about these things. But at that point, the damage was done. I think this underscores a critical issue, though. And the issue is this. We are at a time in history, technological history at least, where photographic and video evidence of any sort relating to anything that could potentially be brought up in a court of law should simply no longer be permissible. I think we're going to applaud, okay? Well... No, I, I agree with you. I agree with you here. Uh, that people go into into a court of law and get serious, serious charges leveled against people based on the idea of photographic evidence simply can't fly, well, especially when it comes to still images. When we're talking about a single image, we're not talking about an image sequence where somebody has to maintain consistency over you know, 30 frames a second over X number of seconds or minutes, we're talking about one single frame. There is nothing that you cannot recreate in a single frame with a few days of time and an expert Photoshop artist. At this point, there is nothing you cannot either modify or create from scratch. And, and we're at a time when you don't have to create things from scratch. Photoshop and tools like it have given us the ultimate blenders to mix images together. I mean, Photoshop is just one example of a tool to do this. Actually, in many ways, Adobe's After Effects product, which is used for motion graphics and animation and, uh, and video effects, in many ways, After Effects is truly a superior compositing environment to Photoshop. And that's not something that the layperson would know, but that's actually a topic that I've written about extensively and years ago told the CEO of Adobe um, in a private meeting I had with him that After Effects represented technologically and architecturally a much superior approach to image layering and compositing than Photoshop. And the truth is it continues to, to do that at this point in time. So, it, you know, people talk about Photoshop as if it were the first product that could mix images together like this, and it certainly wasn't. Uh, there was a history of software that led up to Photoshop, and, you know, as chance would have it, I'm basically the institutional memory of two-dimensional compositing and raster processing software. Now, I know, want to tell uh, our listeners, that stuff, doesn't right? mean that David should be in an institution, okay? Well, maybe it should. But, you know, <laughs> that goes without saying. But, no, it means that he's just been there from almost the very beginning. But before we had Photoshop, okay, mm -hmm. before we had Photoshop, which came out in the latter part of the 1980s, I believe. It was 1990. Oh, 1990. Okay, that was yeah. pretty late in the 1980s. I'm very, right over that cusp there. But seriously, okay. I stand and sit corrected. What did you do before then? You wanted to fake a UFO photo in the 1970s, and you are this one-armed farmer in some European country. What do you do? Trash can lids. <laughs> trash, can trash can lids, lids and Christmas the balls. Yeah. yeah, get yourself some Christmas balls, trash can lids, and your wife's bracelet, and you got a really you have a wedding mom. cake photo. There you go. Yeah, yeah, I mean, there were so many really ingenious ways to do it back then that were, you know, taking a model. I mean, I, I had a guy pull one on me that it wasn't Photoshop. I mean, this was, uh, and this was when Photoshop was around. The guy just really wasn't sophisticated enough to, to do it. He actually took a model and built a really good looking model, actually. He took it outside at one o'clock p.m., on a sunny day, he shot the model hanging suspended in front of a blue sky. He 
took that picture, developed it, had a blow-up made, 8x10, of that mm-hmm. model. He took that model. He was a master at the X-Acto knife. He X-Acto knifed this ship out. He went out the next day at 1 o'clock p.m. Exactly. Same kind of conditions weather-wise. He took another picture of his front lawn with a tree and uh, God knows what else was in the tree. I think he had like a, I think he had some kind of ornament in his front lawn, as I remember. And uh, he took those. He blew those up 8 by 10 he brought those into the house, got double prints made, as I believe he said, cut the tree out with an X-Acto blade. This thing rivaled oh, anything you've seen a laser cutter do in your life. Pasted the cut UFO up against the wall, along with the photograph, pasted the tree over top of that, reshot the picture, <laughs> and it was, a tough, it was a tough one to tell. The only way I could tell was that on one of the pictures of the ship, there was a decided angled edge. And I said, you pasted this up, didn't you? <laughs> <laughs> and he admitted it because I told him, I actually faked him out and said, I've actually got more evidence that you've done this, but I want you to admit it to me. And he did. And then he went off and, and showed me his, uh, his his cut tree. And somewhere around here, actually, he gave me the tree and I got to find it. It's somewhere around here. You could do that. You could do for motion stuff. You could very easily do um, a ship picture like he just did, paste into a piece of glass. And as long as you're out on the same type of day and the same weather conditions... You can pretty much fake the light, the the light angles pretty well with that. You can move the glass around in front of the camera, and it looks very bizarre. You can shoot small models on a string into the sunlight, like someone we know has done countless times, so that the sunlight blurs out or disseminates the the string altogether. A billion ways to do it. I mean, mm. and some of them, you know, I still think the one Adamski uh, shot with the ship that looks like the back end is warping as it goes up and down. It's that piece of moving footage. I still think that's like. I still think that's really good. <laughs> I mean, I really, I really think that's very good. And for the time, I think it's, I think it's damn good actually. But, um, but sometimes I look at it and say, you know, Plan Nine from outer space. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. But hey, I mean, it's, sure. for for what he did, it was pretty damn good. But I mean, a million ways to do it, and uh, and some of them have fooled countless people, as we know, and mm-hmm. uh, and still today people are being fooled by some of this stuff so you don't need photoshop (laughs) you don't no photoshop needed you know that's unfortunate too maybe we'll get onto this in the next section of the show which is the fact that these ancient hoaxes long since exposed just come back rear their ugly heads and start all over again This is Tim Beckley, Mr. UFO, reporting for ConspiracyJournal.com. Fascinated by the strange and unknown, things that go bump in the night, UFOs, time travel, Area 51, the Philadelphia Experiment, shady government cover-ups? Don't be left out in the lunar cold. Sign up now for our weekly online newsletter and receive our snail mail catalogs. Go to ConspiracyJournal.com or email Tim Beckley at MrUFO at WebTV.net. It's all out of this world. You're in the Powercast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. We're talking to Ace Guitar Modifier, Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> Jeff Fritzman. I like that. Yes, and he also <laughs> is a UFO paranormal researcher 
and a photographic expert. So maybe that's an interesting thing we can bring on here for this next section, which is the fact that, like Adamski, I thought the Adamski mystery was pretty much history. Now, one of the best things that Jim Mosley, who was really attacked the other week by Don Ecker in a rather funny way, which I think made one of our listeners almost drive off the road when he uttered those words, but I won't repeat them right now. But Jim Mosley had something called the Special Adamski Expose issue of Saucer News before it became Saucer Smear back in 1957. And he ripped that case apart. But you know what? 10, 20, 30 years down the road, nobody remembers. It starts all over again. What do you guys think? Well, you know, when you're talking about people's memories not seeming to work well, well, God, I mean, people don't remember stuff from day to day, as it appears. You know, week to week, people forget what's going on. I mean, so at this point that people would, would you know, let these bogus UFO cases resurface, I'm not surprised at all, especially when things are dormant for years. They come back with a vengeance. I mean, that's not surprising, is it? Well, there's always a new influx of people, isn't there? I mean, coming into the the whole study, I mean, or the interest of it, you know, uh, they see something on TV. Oh, that's really interesting. Let me read more about that. And they come across, you know, God knows what out there. So, I mean, it's not only that we have this influx of new people, but that the whole UFO field in general, the whole whole ball of wax has a very short term memory. problem with with regard to hoaxes that have been like really well proven throughout the years and they keep popping up if you've got to keep going back to Meyer and Adamski and and all these other people then what are we doing and I'm as guilty of it as anybody else it whizzes me off you know but I, I don't know I don't know where it's going to go from here because the hoaxes are getting to a point like I've told David before that they're getting so sophisticated to a certain point that I question how much longer that we're really going to be able to tell the tools are becoming so much more advanced and you know if the people then become much more advanced than using those tools to fake stuff I question how much longer that we're really going to be able to tell the evidence is not going to be photographic anymore or video or visual at all it's going to come down to multiple multiple people seeing something recording it multiple angles different places different interaction with the environment tests run on that i mean it's going to get incredibly complex if it isn't already let me throw out kind of a red herring here which is totally maybe only slightly related to our subject but this is a story that has come across the news desk at a site called ars technica which is a technology site that's very popular terrific place to get authoritative information about all technology related subjects i'm going to read the first paragraph and i know people in the ufo field are going to jump at this okay the head of a u.s intelligence agency told the associated press that commercial satellite services like google earth may need to be censored in the future in order to protect American interests. And what are these American interests that are being protected exactly? This is where we really have to start asking some tough questions when we talk about American interests. What what would those be exactly? Or is that the American administration interest versus the American public's interest? Because clearly, the American public's interests are no longer a priority for the federal government. And the excuse they're using, David, is that it might expose sensitive information. And I'll give you three examples in the article. Google has already faced requests from Vice President Cheney to remove images of his residence oh. and from the Indian government to blur sensitive military sites. Headlines in the UK have already claimed that 
Iraqi insurgents are using Google Earth to attack British troops. So the question here is, if something relates to military preparedness, to protecting sensitive interests, is there a point, a line of demarcation there? Well, I understand the idea of wanting to blur out you know, photos of military installations. I'm not going to question that. But when we talk about things like Dick Cheney's house... Are you freaking kidding me? So what does he think, that, that, that someone's going to go and, and plan a way to take him out in his house? Oh, gee, now the feds will be knocking on my door. You know, what the heck is that all about? Just like apparently there is now an issue about small airplane traffic over his uh, dungeon, I mean home. Yeah, well, basically when Cheney says something like that, he knows that he's a war criminal. He's not stupid. Yes. By the way, before you say another thing, realize that we're going to get all sorts of email about David airing his political views on the show, to which I say, if you don't like it, change the channel. You okay, were saying, Gene? So can we fly over Buckingham Palace, or would the British government shoot us down? I'm just wondering. <laughs> okay, because we have the Ice Queen of England and Elizabeth II living in that place, or her, her palace in Scotland. Can we just fly over there with abandon, or will they shoot us you down? Know, if they don't protect the Queen that much why are we protecting somebody in the u.s the president or vice president certainly you know obviously if they were people that you wanted that you liked you'd want to see them protected but are we going too far you want security i'll tell you what you do destroy the military take every dollar spent on that nonsense feed every person on this planet give them food give them medicine relieve their pain okay take away the reasons for terrorism Take away the motivation for attacks. We have, at this point in time, the means to do this. We simply choose not to do this because people who are in power want to perpetuate their power. I mean, if we're talking about security here, tell me why I can't get on a plane in the United States to travel domestically and not take Diet Snapple iced tea on board with me. Why do they take my bottles of iced tea away? Is this somehow a threat to the functioning of the plane? What's going on here is not a function of security. What's going on here is manipulation and indoctrination. But of this course, is the wrong show to discuss Actually, this. in that case, though, it's actually because the people who run the concessions want you to buy the Snapple iced tea. There you go. Them. They don't sell Snapple iced tea, those bastards. I'm sorry, you are saying, Jeff? Hey, <laughs> I'll tell you what. We're going to stop for the first hour here of the Paracast. And on the second hour, Jeff Ritzman will still be with us, but we'll also be talking to Tom Levine who's become the first moderator, the first independent moderator of the Paracast Discussion Forums, and he's investigated the mystery of Black Triangles, coming up next on the Paracast. Welcome back to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Vietti. Joining us on the second half of the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Vietney is Tom Levine. Tom is a regular in the Paracast forums and also someone who's been exploring the strange mystery of black triangles. And he joins, of course, myself and David and Jeff Ritzman, who's hanging on for the second hour of the show because we basically tethered him to his microphone. Take a drink. <laughs> Drinking, Dave. I love it. I just took a drink, so I'm good. Okay, so we've all taken our drinks. Tom, let me welcome you first to the Paracast. Thank you, Gene. Thank you for your great participation and the great things you've done for our forums. But how did you ever get involved in looking into black triangles? What are they? 
Well, I, you know, it's really more of just a, it, it started with um, just getting involved on the internet and just getting into discussion forums, particularly yours. Um, I've always been fascinated with um, UFOs. Uh, I've never actually seen one. Um, I saw a B-2 bomber in 1987, and that, but that's about the extent of my experience. But I just started getting involved in discussions, and, um, and I came upon a couple people that their stories really intrigued me. And from there, I decided to just, uh, you know, just start doing my own personal digging and try to uh, try to find some facts about what these things actually are and what they're not. And I started to just kind of poke around. And um, I don't know really what they are, but what for me, what was a more pressing question was whether or not they were real. I mean, I, I know that sounds like a remedial question. But for me, I really wanted to explore that and get to a point where I really accepted to a certain point that the facts were telling me that these are these are real uh, objects that are being seen by people. There was one particular person which actually I, I met on your forum who told a, a remarkable tale and... Um, came across as being, you know, just kind of uh, my instincts were telling me that she was describing something that was a genuine experience. Um, she was adamant about very specific facts about what she had seen, and uh, she was very clear um, and pragmatic in terms of her description of these things. And I, I knew the place, I knew the date, I knew the time of her sighting, and she had also reported it to New Fork about two months prior to uh, entering into this discussion. So there was and some... And we should just interrupt. That's the National UFO Reporting Center. That's Peter Davenport, right? Right. Okay. Right. I found her description, her report to, to, the, to that site. And I, what I did was I went in and I just started to look at all the other reports that were in the same general time frame. And, and that's when I started to... Uh, I just kind of took all that information. I printed them out on, on uh, paper. Uh, and I just started reading them and, uh, you know started to see some trends or, or patterns uh, in some of these descriptions. And I, I took that information and, and um, correlated it into visible data and, uh, and put that into Google Earth and uh, started to just use different kinds of symbols to visually represent the, uh, the different kinds of objects. And, uh, and what I produced from that, for me, was, was a stunning visual representation of um, clearly something that, that seemed to have been going on during the same time frame that this, that this uh, particular individual that I met on your forum again had described her, uh, her experience with, with a black triangle. So that's kind, of, uh, that's kind of how it all started for me. And, and the information was so uh, intense and interesting to me that I felt it was worthy of uh, you know, putting it in writing, putting it, uh, publishing it on the Internet, and that's how the, my, my little blog got started. Tom, let me ask you a question about these black triangles. A number of the reports that I've read seem to indicate that these things are, at least some number of them, are of a massive scale. There were reports that were part of the Phoenix sightings 10 years ago that seemed to indicate that there was some sort of a black triangular ship that... I, I think I remember reading the estimate that uh, one of the witnesses said it was something along the lines of 5,000 feet long. Is that something you've corroborated in your own investigation? Of this? Yeah, and I'm I'm no Phoenix Lights expert, but I do I do know in general what you're talking about. There were two basic sightings, if I remember correctly. One was uh -huh. the uh, the most the, the more commonly known lights that were seen over the sky. Right. Prior to that, there were uh, 
if I remember, at least two, maybe three or four groups of people who saw a much larger object. Uh, and one of those individuals, and I don't have my facts straight, but I think she was a real estate agent and she had known um, the general area and she was able to measure out the distance based on blocks of residences. Mm-hmm. And, and they were, it was a, a mile across or it was some enormous size. In fact, yeah. the, uh, the recent coming out of the governor uh, the ex-governor of Arizona, I believe, he, he also corroborated it. As to my, my facts, um, I can talk about what I read in terms of this, the sightings that I investigated over the Midwestern skies in February of uh, 2007. Mm-hmm. And, and I can say that, in you know, there's always going to be deviations from descriptions. But in general terms, most of these sightings do involve enormously large black craft. And, and in terms of the specific size... You know, it, it varies, but uh, but definitely enormous. I was I talked to my wife about this a little bit, and you know, if you've ever approached a cruise ship or if you've seen a, a blimp flying in the sky, uh, it's really hard to ascertain exactly how large it is, uh, depending on how far away you you are. One person might describe it as a football field. Another person might describe it as a mile in length. And I think if you were right underneath that blimp, or if you were just standing below a, a large cruise ship, it would be even harder for you to, to consistently describe exactly how big that object was. But large, indeed, you would describe it as large, and your description right. would be anywhere from two football fields to a mile in length. So the fact that there might be differences between those descriptions from one witness to another, I think it's fair to say that consistently... Witnesses are describing these objects as being enormous. I think most of you know that I love radio, and so I decide to look for the ultimate receiver for AM reception because I want outstanding AM reception, day and night, especially night when it gets difficult. So I've discovered that C-Crane CC Radio Plus has earned the reputation of having the best AM reception, which is exactly what C-Crane intended when they designed this gem of a radio. Along with its legendary AM reception, it also has excellent FM reception, a weather band, TV audio, and the ability to run on batteries for, and listen to this, 250 hours. So whether you use it as your bedside radio in your kitchen or at work, the CC Radio Plus will give you the pleasure of clear AM reception. The radio is designed for the clarity of the human voice and the benefits of useful features like five memory buttons per band. They work just like memory buttons in your car. A sleep timer. An alarm clock so you can get up at the right time, and a weather alert that now works as an all-hazards alarm. You know what I want you to do? I want you to buy that radio, but also support this show by visiting our site, theparacast.com. That's theparacast.com right now. Click on the C-Crane sponsor button to order the CC Radio Plus for $164.95, and that includes free ground shipping and a free C-Crane catalog. Place your order today. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. 
with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney, and we're talking about the incredible mystery of the Black Triangles with Tom Levine, who's been studying it for quite some time. He has a blog on the subject that we'll link to from theparacast.com. He's also moderator of the Paracast discussion forums. Also, UFO investigator Jeff Ritzman is with us. Now, starting up with this Black Triangle investigation, Tom, have you traced it back through so-called UFO history to see where this thing may have first started? Well, you know, I, I I would say loosely my expertise. I certainly don't consider myself an expert on the subject, but my time has been spent basically on the here and now with this subject uh, in terms of getting testimonies from people who have seen this thing and really focusing in on what was going on in, in February of 07. But that said, I do know that, that, that these things have at least been reported in, in high numbers going back to the, I would say loosely to the 80s, even farther back than that. But clearly there, there's there been some sort of a flap between the 80s uh, and now. So these, these sightings, hundreds and hundreds of these black triangles have been, um, have been reported uh, at least over a two and a half decades. And you can point to the Belgium flap from 1989 to 91, I believe. And then uh, there's, of course, the Phoenix Lights in 1997. There's the, uh, the, the Shiloh, Illinois case, which is a phenomenal case uh, that took place in January of 2000 and on on into the present. Prior to that, there there are sightings of uh, black triangles, and if you want to kind of broaden the category, you could also include boomerang sightings. And and uh, if memory serves, there's a very famous boomerang sighting from Project Blue Book, uh, where a young boy, I think he was. 16 years old or so took an amazing picture of a, a boomerang with enormous size with these unusual lights right over his head traveling over his town uh, you know these were cameras from prior to modern technology so the idea that he was committing some kind of a, a fraud or, or something is really hard to believe so and that was one of those several cases if I remember that that project Blue Book left as unsolved uh, so you can you can kind of use that to go back as a barometer for how far back these go in modern times. And someday I'd like to fully investigate that case because I think that one's quite fascinating. But do, do you see almost universally here that these boomerang-shaped objects or black triangles or whatever, they're very large? Large indeed. I There, there is... Uh, deviations and the objects change. You know, I'm certain that none of us feel that we don't know for sure that we're talking about the same object or the same phenomenon. In in Belgium, I believe the descriptions of that object were much smaller than uh, miles across. And that that one has an amazing. Uh, there's amazing photographic evidence that was generated from that case in Belgium in 1991. That triangle is is seems to be a little smaller than the kinds of descriptions that were hearing from other witnesses. But again, it's back to my original point about uh, perspective, and it's really hard to know whether we're talking about something that's a football field or a mile and, and, and how far away are people actually seeing it. But there are there are definitely deviations. I would say in general, though, we're talking about the, the types of black triangles that were being described in February of two, 2007 were enormous in size. Jeff, what do you know, if anything, about the history of these shapes and scales of craft? Is this something that we see go back 
consistently throughout UFO history? Not that I'm wholly aware of. I mean, I think the first, some of the first triangle stuff was probably, that I can remember reading about was uh, in relation to Pine Bush, New York, where a group up there, namely, I think, Ellen Crystal and Bruce Coronet are a couple of folks up there that have done a lot of night watching for craft like that and have seen them. Hudson Valley area. I mean, I saw a boomerang shape one myself in Northern Maryland. So that was, my sighting was, oddly enough, the very day that the news broke about the Hale-Bopp suicides in um, with It was that very night. But uh, I don't know how far back it goes. And, and as far as the Hudson Valley stuff, I think that uh, Ellen Crystal and Bruce Cornett, I think both of those have kind of made some far-reaching conclusions over the years as to what they are and where they come from that I don't necessarily agree with. But it's obvious that a lot of people up there see a lot of very, very large triangular objects. And some of them reported at ridiculously low elevations as well. So, you know, that's one thing I was going to ask Tom. Tom, what what as far as, as Pine Bush, have you heard or do you know? Has anything been seen up there lately or not? Well, and again, I'm I'm my research is really more focused on the present tense. And there is that close to the Canadian border, that part of New York? No, no, now, not really. It's 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 upstate New York, but I don't think it's okay. that far, you know, north. Uh, well, my short answer is not. I haven't heard much about that. But when I got there, was a lot of media attention after I wrote some of these articles, and I, I got a lot of emails from uh, people. And there were emails coming in from people around the, the border that were talking about a variety of triangular shaped sightings that were much smaller and uh, more likely. Uh, a lot of those folks were actually talking about them being more consistent with um, unmanned. And smaller craft. Somebody can help me out with what they are. Drone plane, just drone yeah, planes. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Uh, conducting some kind of, uh, you know, now there's also inconsistency with completely describing him as military. But anyway, uh, well, just to finish my thought is that that was, that description of some of the sightings that people sent to me were dating back in the in the early 80s, and that was up around, you know, with the Great Lakes and the Canadian border was where they were describing seeing these things. I think it's really important that to note that some of the more compelling reports of the large triangles contain um, a specific element that we see repeated in what I would consider to be compelling reports, which is an absolute absence of sound. Now, if we had unmanned drone military aircraft, uh, we would expect to he- to have sound associated with that, where with some of the really big triangle reports, a consistent element is a complete lack of any kind of sound. And I think that's a very important element in, di- in discussing any UFO case. If there's something that sounds like jet engines or, or propeller engines in any way, I mean, to me, that is a clear sign of a terrestrial sourced episode or object where when we have these things and there's no sound at all, then I think that's much more interesting because even the smallest drone craft are going to have a very noticeable, very obvious engine sound. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's extremely uh, extremely compelling and consistent element uh, of these sightings is the complete lack of sound. Mm-hmm. It makes me feel like, I, I, you know, I'm always bouncing back and forth between 
is there a terrestrial explanation or do we do we simply need to go to a, a non-terrestrial explanation and i go back and forth because the facts are they, they really support both conclusions with regard to sound i i feel comfortable with saying that at least it points to an exotic explanation whether that be terrestrial or non. If it's terrestrial, it's got to be some kind of an exotic propulsion system that we're just not familiar with. If it's non-terrestrial, it can easily be explained as being something we fully don't understand. Well, we always have to be careful with the terms terrestrial non or you know, non-terrestrial because I, I'm actually at this point more comfortable with human or non-human. I think that's, and, and I know that we catch some grief for that here on the Paracast, but you know when, I, when we're talking about something that's 5,000 feet in length, let's qualify this, because it just so happens that being someone who's into boats, I know that you know the, the large, a large cruise ship is about 1,000 feet long. That's pretty much the length of what we consider to be a full-size cruise ship. When you see something in the air, when it's reported that something is seen in the air that's up to a mile long or 5,000 feet long, that's 5,000 feet are five cruise ships strung edge to edge. That is an enormous thing. If you saw that in the water, if you saw an object that was five cruise ships long in the water, you'd be like, oh my God, what, what in God's name is that? When you see something like that in the air, it's even more terrifying because your brain has no reference point. Your brain has never seen something in the sky that's a structured object that's not a cloud that's that big. So at that point, when you see that in the sky, uh, obscuring the stars, the number of the reports that I've seen have been where people have seen it at night and they've noticed it because it's blocking out the stars and they yeah. see the shape of it by that. You've got something that big moving silently. I'm going to go on record here and say that we don't have any exotic technology that can do that. that that's just simply, I believe, outside of the range of current human technology don't you think before you give your answer <laughs> let's have a cliffhanger if you're looking for a better way to present or collaborate during your conference calls your solution is simple web conferencing with go to meeting during your call everyone logs on to go to meeting.com and your computer screen shows up on their computer screens. It's like you're all in the same room. GoToMeeting is perfect for sales or product demos, training, or real-time collaboration. Plus, you're not charged per minute like other providers. You can meet as often as you want for as long as you need. With GoToMeeting, you can meet with anyone, anywhere, without leaving your office. You'll not only save time, but money, too. See for yourself. Try GoToMeeting free for 45 days. Just visit GoToMeeting.com forward slash podcast. That's GoToMeeting.com forward slash podcast. Try GoToMeeting today. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the podcast, send it to News at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and gene in data. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. We're joined by Tom Levine, who spent a lot of time investigating the mystery of black triangles, strange things that 
look like where they're described. They're as large as football fields, apparently. We also have UFO investigator Jeff Ritzman. So, Tom, what is your Yo. perception here? <laughs> well, let me put it this way. I've never seen anything that size in the skies above my head. I mean, I so I have no personal experience to to correlate that with anything that I know of that's that's human in nature. So, and and you know, I've I've had these kinds of conversations with people that, and, and I've never seen a black triangle. So, uh, but I've talked to people who claim that they have, and so I I'm intrigued, and I ask them. You know, there's been a lot of theories that have floated out there. One very popular theory is that we're we're looking at uh, the deployment of some kind of you know exotic military craft. What do you think? And the, the response that, you know, and I'll throw out the, you know, the stealth blimp concept, um, which is uh, that comes from the NIDS report from uh, 2002. And I'll ask people that have actually seen these craft, people that I feel that are credible witnesses. And I'll say, what do you, you know, what do you think about these facts? And almost consistently, they all, they all say what I saw was no blimp. And so that's, that's, they, and they're the ones that have, seen it. So if, if they feel with conviction, I mean, they say this with conviction, what I saw was no blimp. A blimp is really the only thing I can think of that, that I can connect to with my own personal experience that could come even potentially close to that kind of size. And people that have seen it said, there's no way. There's just no way. So... That's about the closest. I, mean, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think we've ever had a blimp that's been 5,000 feet long. Not that I'm not that I'm aware of. <laughs> Wait a minute. What about Mama Cass? No, I'm sorry. Oh, God. Oh, jeez. <clears throat> Jeff, why'd you make me do that? Uh, yeah. Uh-huh. Actually, David, you have to take your own responsibility for making statements like that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, Tom, I, I Tom, what do you think about people who bring up the, uh, the TR3 as far as an explanation for triangle-shaped stuff. I mean, I, I don't know for sure that the TR-3 is even being officially acknowledged, as far as I know, but well, I know that when I had a sighting of a boomerang-shaped thing, that probably, if I had to guess, was probably only, I don't know, 60 feet wingtip to wingtip, maybe a little more than that. But it did stop dead over top of us and then slid off. And I was immediately told when I went to, uh, uh, at the time, I was going to MUFON meetings like every month. I had this a back gentleman in. there, you know, this was, this was back... 1997 or time, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, he immediately, he immediately, you know, said to me, he's like, "Well, that's a TR3." I was like, "Really?" He's like, "Yeah." He said, "The way you describe it, with the bank of lights on the front and then the bank of lights on the back, because that's like textbook. That's exactly what that mm-hmm. sounds like." You know, well, my question would be, why did it? Why is it flying over a residential area? You know, albeit a rural one. You know, why is it doing that? So, I mean. What do you think of that as being an explanation for anything? Yeah, well, I'm, I might get myself into a famous David Beanie trouble here because I'm going to tell you what I think about the TR3. But I, I have some reservations about that explanation. It, it first of all, I, and, and my facts might be wrong, so I'm just going to concede that right here. But based on what I've, I've seen, that the, the TR3 might very well be an actual reverse engineered craft. Now, I'm not talking about terrestrial craft reverse engineered from an alien terrestrial craft. I'm talking about Mr. Fauch taking previously reported black triangles and reverse engineering it into his own story. That's kind of my take on it. See, in, in Mr. Uh, Fauch, based on what I've seen, this um, explanation of a, t- a TR3 stems from him. He's a gentleman that came on to the, and, and this is back before my time here, but came onto the scene uh, roughly around 
97 to I can't remember the exact dates maybe 97 to 99 somewhere in there right. but he's he kind of, he came out of uh, being having some military background he wrote a book and he uh, came up with the, the TR3 explanation at the UFO conference in Las Vegas complete with graphics and slideshows and all this stuff his story about the TR3 stems from conversations he had with three or four of his friends at a diner in Las Vegas over the course of, I don't know, maybe a year. So, and his book, uh, which he specifically described as being secondhand information that he even uh, went to the JAGs in the military to make sure that he wouldn't get in any trouble for writing it. And they said, as long as it's not from any direct knowledge that you have, you're fine. So basically, this is a book that he wrote based on stories that several friends told sitting around a diner in Vegas over the course of a year produced this book and and he comes on the scene goes to these UFO conferences the book by the way is still in first edition which means that not many of these books actually were sold and and he oh, he started up his company Fausch Media and after about a year he basically disappears completely um, I think he tried a brain entrainment software business that didn't go so well I get the sense that this is a guy that goes that's trying to do something after retirement it's just my take okay. uh, but he's trying to do something and it's not working out and then he disappears and then several years later he's he's seen uh, working with a software program to try and create like a video game of his CR3B and that's about it. The only thing that I find compelling about it is that it does seem to match a lot of descriptions of these craft. The three lights on the on the three points of the triangle, the three white lights and um, a lot of that stuff corroborates and, and when people see the picture they tend to say that's what I saw. So I'm a little perplexed by that myself but I, I don't hold a lot of weight with Mr. Fausch's um, story. Okay. Just as a reference point, guys, the Hindenburg and its sister ship, the Graf Zeppelin II, were the largest aircraft ever built, and they were um, 804 feet long. So just as a reference, when people talk about you know, size, scale of objects and, and blimps, the largest aircraft ever built were these Zeppelins, and they were 804 feet long. So something 5,000 feet wide, that's way bigger than the biggest thing ever built. Hmm. Just as a reference point, I think it's important to point that out because I think for a lot of people, they don't necessarily have a good idea of, of scale. So there's just that for, for, for reference. For 58 years, fate has provided true reports of the strange and unknown Fate brings you the latest in all aspects of the paranormal, like angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, and much, much more. To receive your complimentary Fate magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. 
Let's scale this. You're in the PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. They were talking to Tom Levine, UFO investigator specializing in the Black Triangle mystery. And, of course, our old friend Jeff Ritzman is along for the ride. And we're trying to sort things out here. And certainly that would also bring up an issue of so-called mothership sightings. Because Black Triangles, especially the size that we're talking about here, what other kind of craft have people reported through the years, UFOs that are really, really huge? Well, I mean, that has to be cigar-shaped ships. I mean, that's pretty much, I think that's the sort of the, the foundation of large craft, where the cigar ships, though there have been some really bizarre reports, specifically by airline pilots, of disc-shaped ships that were like a 1,000 feet in diameter. Though I don't think there's ever been a compelling bit of photographic evidence that I've ever seen to back that up. The, the cigar ships seem to be the prototypical shape for these things. And I think a lot of that has to do with integrity of objects at large scales. If you look at things like surface um, tension and shear resistance of large constructed shapes, you find that things like the egg shape and by extension the cigar shape tend to have the greatest degree of rigidity and uh, resistance to shear forces, things that would basically make something bend or snap. In terms of just mechanical engineering, the cigar shape specifically has greatest amount of strength and surface strength, and also the largest amount of internal space based on that issue of shape. So it's, it turns out to be a very efficient shape if you're going to make something really big. And you can sort of start to see this if you look at things like the design of your submarines for the most part they tend to have a shape that's very similar to that and we're talking about again things like shear resistance which is really important when you have a vessel that's going down thousands of feet in the ocean where the shear force and the pressure becomes so great that resisting that pressure is one of the sort of huge problems of engineering of something that's designed to withstand that kind of pressure at that depth so the cigar shape seems to be the prototypical shape what do you think guys well <laughs> the sound of silence. Yes, but then how does that explain the triangle? <laughs> well, I mean, well, I think the, the whole thing with the cigar shape and the, the structure of it, I mean, I think David's got a valid point if we're talking about something that actually interacts with the environment like it should or what we consider to be normal. Right. But the question is, <laughs> do they? I mean, obviously, by some reports and, and what have you, they, they don't interact with the environment with the environment in a normal way. So the question we got to ask ourselves is, do the physics apply of structural you know, durability? Does it even apply to these things? Are they even operating in that same that same way? You know, That's a big question to me that I got. I think that's an excellent point. I, if we're going to take the leap in, um, into the realm of uh, non-human and we're seeing all these craft, we, we don't know what their intentions are. We don't know what these right. materials are. There's uh, the, the Gridley, Illinois sighting that I... I got involved in. She actually, this thing, this particular triangle went overhead and morphed into uh, a different shape and took off down the street. Now that, if, if what she's seeing isn't, um, and, and there's, there's some other sightings
sightings of these uh, objects and other objects that have seen a similar kind of a phenomenon. So if that's really happening, then this this is not a, a rigid type of material. It's behaving in a way that, that we don't fully understand. Mm-hmm. I think that's certainly, uh, those are relevant points. I kind of, when I bring up the cigar object, I mean, anybody who's listened to the show knows that in the fifth episode of the Paracast, I discussed my own personal sighting with my brother and my parents and God knows thousands of other people of one of these cigar-based ships. And the scale of this thing was, was massive. And based on what happened at, at that sighting, I mean, my brother actually had a strong feeling that this was an extraterrestrial craft. I, I don't know that based on that sighting, I would make that same observation. But I'm going to throw something out into this discussion now, completely from left field. And I'm hesitant to bring to even mention this, but I'm going to mention it. And it's this. Let's say for a moment, this is going to get this is going to get so severely weird that I suspect that what I'm about to say will be the end of the Paracast. <laughs> so I'm just warning you guys. It's Actually, that, probably yeah. be our most listened to episode, and we'll have to have well, an update every week for the rest of our lives. Right. Well, this is going to this is going to get so seriously weird that I think Jeff's going to hang up. But let's let's give it a shot. Okay. So let's say for a moment, for argument's sake that you were an intelligent species that were in the position being able to travel between stellar systems. Let's say that you were in a technologically sophisticated society, unlike, you know, ours, where you discovered that the greatest source of energy in the immediate vicinity to where you, you are, where your planet is, is the local star. Makes a lot of sense. Without our star, the sun, planet Earth would pretty much be, well, it wouldn't even be here. If our, something happened to our star, it's toast time on Earth. There's nothing left. You know, if the star were to explode eight minutes later, planet Earth is gone. But let's say you're a technologically sophisticated civilization, and you come to the conclusion that utilization of your local star is what provides not only all the energy to fuel the growth of your civilization and the feeding of your technology on your planet, but you also discover that perhaps the magnetic push and pull of a star's magnetic field is the key to being able to take a ship of some sort and rev it up to speeds that allow you to move between star systems, perhaps maybe even go faster than the speed of light with some other tricks, shall we say. And we don't know what the nature of those tricks are, but science fiction has dealt with it, physics is trying to deal with it now, but let's say that you were going to move between two stars, and you were going to use the magnetic fields of those stars to both repel you away from your source star and pull you towards your target star. Let's say that you had to now design a craft that had two versions of its propulsion system, one that would interact with the star that the object was pushing away from, and another interacting with the star that the ship was attracting itself to. In that context, I suspect that the cigar shape is exactly that shape for a reason, and that reason being that if you were going to utilize a version of the technique I just described in a very vague and brief way, then you would have some sort of an anti-gravity or magnetic engine Two of them, one on either side of the ship, the cigar ship, and that the, again, the most structurally strong and desirable shape to have the maximum amount of enclosure space between these two propulsion systems, one on either end of the ship to push away from one star and pull into the other star and then, firstly, 
help use the magnetic field of the target star you're going to to break your ship as you're coming in, that a cigar would actually be, from a, a straight mechanical engineering point of view, material point of view, the cigar would be the most efficient and shear-resistant shape for such a propulsion technique. Now, I'm just throwing this out there because from a physics point of view, to me, that approach answers a number of issues and addresses a number of questions. I have no reason to believe that any of that's accurate, but I think it's something worthy of, if nothing else, a discussion on the Paracast. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and Gene and Data. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. And I'll tell our listeners, you're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney, and we're talking to Tom Levine, our message forums moderator, who has been studying black triangles, and UFO investigator Jeff Ritzman. So, okay, the ideal shape is a cigar. Let's smoke that, ladies and gentlemen, and talk about it. <laughs> what a nut. <laughs> you call me a nut, Ritzman? Of all the harebrained ideas. Yeah, yeah I, I mean, plausible as anything else, I guess. I mean, you know, I agree. I mean, the, the cigar shape would be the strongest thing. Uh, you certainly don't have to, you know, if you're out there in that kind of space, you're not going to worry about aerodynamics or anything. So, right. yeah, I mean, I think it's I think it's a perfectly plausible theory. You know, the only problem with theories is there's damn many of them. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, I haven't seen this theory really no, be discussed. No, uh-uh, I haven't either. And um, I think you, uh, I think you'd be you'd behoove yourself to file an application with NASA. <laughs> I, I don't Good know. What do you think, Tom? How goofy does that sound to you? Oh my God! Well, physicist, uh, <laughs> I am not. Well, there were a couple things that I thought of when you were describing that. The first is that your description of being pushed from one star and being pulled from another, it it sounds a lot like gravity to me, which is uh, interesting. The other thing is I was kind of thinking about other objects in our world that are similar to that, and the one that comes to mind is a bullet. Uh, A bullet is is definitely in the same shape. You don't see a, a, you know, maybe back in the 1700s you saw round pellets, but basically Basically, bullets are cigar-shaped, and for that specific reason, I would think the aerodynamic purpose of, a, of, of the bullet is to cut through the uh, shear through the wind, is using your your terminology. So, well, like a bullet's like a little tiny rocket, really. I mean, if you look at it without the fins and the the directionality is really, and Jeff, you can really help me out on this, but the inside of the barrel is machined in a way to put a certain spin on the bullet. And the spin on the bullet that is imported in a normal gun is kind of the equivalent of what fins do aerodynamically in a rocket shape. Jeff, is that completely off balance or no? No, it's right. I mean, when it ejects out of the barrel, it's gonna, it's, it's definitely spinning. I mean, the Germans in World War II employed a bleeder bullet that that had razor fins on the back. It looks just like a rocket, and that uh, that spun it even more. And of course, you didn't want to get hit by that because number one, you can't hardly get them out without tearing yourself completely apart. But yeah, there's a definite spin there, and there's a, I mean, you've got the aerodynamic aspect of it. 
being appointed at the end that's going to cut the wind to give you a, a lot more accuracy, obviously. But I mean, as far as when we're talking about like a cigar-shaped craft, they'll, they usually have blunt front ends and back ends, at least that I've seen pictures and right. video of that, that exist of some of the weird right. stuff. That's the part that kind of like chucks me off a little bit is that, you know, we've got a blunt front end and we've got a blunt back end. If they were rounded, I could kind of understand that. So I don't know. I mean, cigar craft, I don't, I don't honestly know a whole lot about, but I mean, as far as using gravity or using the pull of different stars to get around, I mean, that kind of goes along with what, I mean, on a sort of a tandem subject that a lot of experiencers have been told, you know, by whatever non-human entities that these things are, that, you know, they, they, they've been posed the question, you know, well, how do you, how'd you get here? What do you, you know, blah, blah, blah. And they said, well, in a lot of cases I've read has said, uh, you choose to fight against the forces of the nature that surrounds you. And we more or less take advantage of it, right. which would kind of, you know, and it, if you really think about that statement, it kind of makes a lot of sense. You know, we spend half our lives fighting gravity and the pull of the earth when, you know, maybe if we tried something else to using the pull from somewhere else to get elsewhere, you know, that could be a, a real viable way to get around. And if people in any way doubt the effects that planetary bodies have on one another with gravity, I submit that without the moon, we'd be in big trouble here on the earth just in terms of the tidal motion of the oceans. I mean, the moon exerts enough gravitational force on us to have a very, very obvious, very noticeable effect on where the water's at. And werewolves. <laughs> and menstrual periods, <laughs> menstrual cycles. But, I mean, you know, well, I mean, look, we're laughing about, well, I'm going to clearly laugh about the werewolf part. <laughs> you know, Eddie, Eddie Munster was a character in a show, not a, not a real guy. But when we look at stars, and I mean, we're talking about our star, which is a fairly mundane one in terms of size. We find out that there are stellar masses. You know, you've, got, you've got stars 50, 60, 70 times the size of ours. Mm-hmm. That's an insane amount of magnetic force. I mean, that's an insane amount of energy. Oh, anyway, you cut it, but just the magnetic force and the gravitational force of a body that can keep Pluto spinning around it, you know, and then take that to multiply times 50. Boy, if you can push away from that in a way that you're applying or you're getting the same amount of, of, of energy from that, that that it puts out and you're pushing away with that amount of energy, I'd have to believe that at that point, yeah, this ends up solving the problem of, of light speed, I suspect. Um, and again, part of the, the issue is to lubricate the tracks in front of you as well. And so if you can change the characteristics of space-time and gravity in front of you as you're moving forward and you're basically using the magnetic field of another star, the star you're going to, to both pull you in and also break you because you're coming in too fast, that to me explains the idea of the blunt end on either side of the cigar because that's where the propulsion systems would be. There's two propulsion systems, one on the back, one on the front. You're accelerating at the same time that you're deaccelerating, you're repelling at the same time that you're attracting, and to me, I mean, and, and I don't have any reason to know this, I have certain reasons to believe it, and to my intuition and my understanding of physics, this all starts to, to my crazy, insane, warped mind, it starts to make sense. And again, I'm bringing it up here in the Paracast because I, I like using this show as a forum to discuss 
crazy new ideas with our guests. And this is an idea that I, in all of my reading of UFO lore and research, I've never read anybody trying to deal with this issue. And I think it's important just to throw it out on the table and see what happens. David, I have a question. When you saw your ear sighting of the cigar-shaped object, did you see it going uh, in one direction or another, or did you see it going at an extremely fast speed or hovering, or how would you describe it? It it was moving really slowly, Tom, and it was moving extremely slowly, and it was indeed moving in a direction as if it were sort of, you know, think of the cigar shape and moving in a vectorial direction away from one end. So mm-hmm. it was definitely moving like that. It was moving sideways. It was moving forward, as it were. And it was moving very, very slowly. And what we talked about on the episode and, and what in discussions with my brother and, 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 in fact, discussions with Jeff about this, it seems to me like the craft was in some way having a problem. That, A, it didn't want to be seen, and, B, it was moving slowly because it couldn't move fast. What happened was the thing stopped at one point some sort of a hatch opened up underneath of it, and three discs came out. And that's where the sighting got seriously weird. Two of the discs moved towards what would have been the front of the thing, or at least in terms of the direction it was moving. One of the discs moved to the back of the thing. So in essence, they created a triangulation around this cigar shape. There were three discs. They moved to this position, these positions, and it's, it's as, as if... They knew exactly where they were going. There was no hesitation of things, these these discs to go to those specific locations. It almost Once sounds they, like just it sounds like a de- yeah. destroyers around a battleship. You know how you'll have destroyers oh, yeah. positioned right alongside battleships. Um, <laughs> yep. So two went to the front, went, one went to the back, and then the whole thing blinked out. It all vanished. I have a question to ask you, David, because you yep. raised a really interesting question. But that's the cliffhanger. You are about to enter another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a sinister land of secret rites, passwords, initiations, and handshakes, where the truth remains hidden and history is controlled by an elite group of mysterious men. Imagine, if you will, that I'm holding a book in my hands that explains this secret history and that the name of this book is Conspiracies and Secret Societies, The Complete Dossier. Here is described centuries of dark dealing, lies, murder, mayhem, and cover-ups in the pursuit of unimaginable money and power. My name is Brad Steiger, and the stories you are about to read may have actually happened at the signpost up ahead. Your next stop, Conspiracies and Secret Societies, the complete dossier. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. 
You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney, and we have Tom Levine and Jeff Ritzman, both UFO investigators. We're talking shop here, talking about black triangles, cigars, cigarettes, and all that stuff, and candy. And David, I had a thought here by what you saw. You see this demonstration that blinks out. Do you think it was meant for your attention they were putting on a show for you? No, no. I think that this thing was having problems, and when those three discs flew into this triangular formation, and the whole thing blinked out, as I said on that episode, and I'll say it now, I think that that ship was still there, except light was being distorted in a way around it by where it looked invisible to us. My gut intuition was that the thing was still there, hanging in the sky, but effectively, not to use sci-fi terminology, Gene, because you know that that just like annoys me. But effectively, it was it was being cloaked by the three discs. Could it be then that the mechanism normally used to hide it was non-functional, and therefore they were fixing it? That could be a theory too, I guess. I'm guess, and I have no reason to believe this. I'm guessing that a byproduct of the propulsion system is the ability to bend light as well as bend gravity. So I'm guessing that when you have this technology, whatever this technology is, it allows you to distort gravity, that by definition you get as a freebie the distortion of light, which effectively is the equivalent of cloaking. I think it comes free with it. So I think this thing was having a problem with its propulsion system, and that's why it couldn't bend the light the way it normally would in order to not appear to us. And, and again, guys, I have no proof of any of this. This is just my own intuition, nothing more. Let me raise a question here, and that is, are we seeing fewer cigar-shaped craft and more triangular-shaped craft in the last 20 years? What's going on? I think that's probably true. Tom, have you, in your research into this, have you mapped the um, frequency of occurrences? I know you've mapped things geographically. Have you mapped frequency of occurrences, and, and has that told you anything? Not me, except for that that four day the four days that I investigated in in the Midwest over the United States in February of this year. Clearly, there was uh, a huge uh, frequency in that period of time. Uh, just in that for that four day period, there were ten sightings of enormous craft. Uh, black and opaque in color. Uh, some were triangular, some were described as rectangular, but 10 out of 28, so 35% of all UFOs reported in the United States in those four days were reported over this general area. But I think you can look to NIDS for that. They they did an intense study of uh, black triangle sightings over a period of time, and, and hundreds and hundreds of these things have been, have been seen and documented and and analyzed by NIDS uh, until they disappeared um, off the scene in roughly around 2004. So uh, I would say that in terms of frequency between cigar-shaped sightings and uh, black triangles, I think black triangles are certainly the uh, more popular ones. Although when you, if you do go to New Fork and look at their reports, you will see plenty of all kinds of exotic craft being seen. And that, of course, is one of the most vexing questions in all of this the variety of different types of mechanisms and shapes and sizes to me is, is very curious. And I'll go on record here and, and say something that um, will generate controversy, but I suspect that, and I, I can't wait to hear Jeff chuckle when I say this, uh-uh. but um, I think that a lot of the different types and shapes and the fact that we hear reports 
about all these different shapes and colors and sizes, I think it's a distractionary element. I think that our perception that there are all these different shapes and sizes is it's our perception is being tampered with. This absolutely. perception is being engineered. What do you think, Jeff? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, I mean, it goes without saying that I, I think I've talked to the Paracast before about a lady in Southern Maryland that, that had a sighting and her husband said there's a bright light in the sky. And when she went out, this was towards dusk. She saw half of a tractor trailer floating in the air. I mean, <laughs> yeah. come on. You know, I, I think that it is incredibly subjective. And, uh, you know, I think a lot of people, when I bring that up, say, well, what about the pictures? Well, <laughs> do, is it such a far stretch to think that we may have some participation in what these things actually manifest like? You know, I don't I don't think that's too far out of the realm of, uh, of a possibility. I mean, there's, I think there's ample... Uh, testimony that that these things are very subjective and uh i look back to um a sighting my wife me and my son had in a park we were flying kites and uh and i looked up and i would say it was probably to the would have been to the south i believe uh south of us in the air fairly high up was a silver ball hanging there not moving I called my wife. She was behind me. I said, do you see that? She says, what? I don't see anything. I said, come here. She stood right beside me. She could not see it. I put her in front of me, and she saw it. <laughs> so yeah. when I see something like that, you know, she says, look, what happens when you take it? She says, take a step to your left. I took a step to my left, and it just absolutely disappeared. It was not there. And when I stepped back into the position I was before, there it was again. Sounds like a projection of some sort. Exactly. Hmm. Um, I think in in more than enough cases, maybe not in all of them, but I think in more than enough cases that when, Gene, I think you mentioned, did you think, or, or Tom mentioned, did you think it was meant for you to see? I think in a lot of cases, it is absolutely meant for a spectator to view it. You know, I don't have any explanation other than, you know, this thing was there in one position, and when I took a step left or right, it was gone. Hey, you know, uh, we only have about two or three minutes left, and I wanted to just ask a couple of final questions of Tom Levine, since he's joining us for the first time. Tom, where do you go from here in terms of your investigation into the mystery of the Black Triangles? Well, uh, I have a couple things I'm interested in doing. Um, one is I'm, I want to finish up a certainly a less fascinating story, I guess, than the one I, I reported on in February about the Pasco Vale uh, sightings. Um, that's about one more report. But after that, I'm really interested in, in doing some recorded interviews of, uh, of some of these um, uh, witnesses. In particular, um, th- there's, there's two or three that come to mind where we have groups of people that act Actually saw these things, not just one witness. So those I find particularly intriguing. We've got family members who saw them together, but also a neighbor who saw the same thing, who can corroborate uh, the sighting. And if I can get that documented, get a statement, um, a simple statement recorded, so I can then go back, transcribe the statements, and start to compare and contrast the facts, I'd really like to do that. I think I'm going to stick with looking into, for now anyway, there's so much going on right now in the present tense that that it's if I start looking backwards in time historically, I'm going to get wrapped up into that. That that is a volume of information all by itself. But there's so much going on in the present tense that it really warrants more attention. And and I just really want to dig my heels in and and start just digging up facts, taking statements, and 
keep looking up at the sky. Hopefully, I'll see one myself. Wouldn't that be nice? Now, of course, Tom's information can be found, and he's a regular poster and a moderator at the Paracast discussion forums at theparacast.com. So you check there, and of course, we'll have a link to his blog over at theparacast.com when we announce the show. Tom, thanks yes, for joining us and being so helpful in the forums, and thanks for joining us on the show. And this is going to be the first time, but we're going to have you on again in the future as you continue your investigations. And certainly we welcome you back. An absolute pleasure, Gene. Thanks for inviting me so much. And Jeff Fritzman, what can I say? Nobody. Take a drink. <laughs> I'll take a drink and say nobody. <laughs> nobody rebuilds a guitar better than you. Oh, thanks, Gene. Damn right. And, and, and David... I guess I'm going to see you next week. Yeah, probably. Jim, gentlemen, Tom, Jeff, thanks so much for taking the time out to uh, have this discussion. Thanks for letting me air some strange ideas. It won't be the last time. <laughs> no problem, Dave. Thanks because anything can happen. Next time, next time you light up a cigar, let me know. No, 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 no. Not, not, <laughs> not, one, of my, not one of my sins, thank goodness. <laughs> All happening on the Paracast. The Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Join us next week for a new adventure in The Paracast.